3: From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I experience your wounds as if they were my own. Reads the last line of Clint Smith's poem "No Seception." Directed to a child, it explains that just as a sea creature that loses an appendage feels discomfort across its entire body, so does a parent whose child is in pain. The poem is part of Smith's new collection, Above Ground, which also celebrates the joy, wonder, and occasional absurdity of being a parent. We'll talk to Smith about what he calls the simultaneity of the human experience. And we want to hear from you. Do you remember feeling joy amid despair, awe, alongside fear? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Clint Smith's new poetry collection starts with a preface of two quotes, one from his daughter and one from his son. The one from his son reads, have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a ladybug? And the one from his daughter is, When I grow up, I want to be the sun." Smith's new collection is called Above Ground, reflecting on fatherhood, the intense ways children can make us feel, and how they can completely change the way we see the world around us, among so many other things. Welcome back to Forum, Clint Smith.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
3: You probably could tell. I love those those little mini verses from your kids because that intensive wondering that kids subject us to is so <laughs> familiar. Absolutely. And it, it also, yeah, reminds us of how in a child's mind transformations into the sun are, are possible.
2: Anything is possible. I, th- I think that, you know, so much of what I've tried to to document and to sort of archive with these poems are these, these little moments, these little ideas, these little things that your kids say that that you can you know you might laugh at or you might chuckle at or you you know you might think about but we don't always have the chance to to write them down we don't always have the chance to to sit with them and like really reflect on them meditate with them um and so much of what i'm trying to do in this book is is really hold on to those otherwise Mm -hmm. fleeting moments that we have with our children that uh that remind you know the old adage is the the what is it the days are long but the years are fast and <laughs> right. it's uh, and it's so true you know my kids are only five and four but even even now you know I think I remember watching my five year old walk into kindergarten for the first time at the beginning of this academic school year and I was like who are these mammoth children like walking next to the, to my kid and they was fifth graders right but you know coming from preschool you know your kid looks like a tiny uh, a tiny little lamb among um, he's, you know, huge sheep and and goats to extend the metaphor, but it's 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 just so amazing how quickly that happens. Because I remember when he was a baby, for example, I couldn't even imagine him talking. Right? I looked at him and I was like, I can't believe we'll have conversations one day. <laughs> and now he's learning to read, and the world is becoming legible to him in a different way. And and so yeah. it all happens so fast. I just wanted to to try to capture as much as of it as much of it as I could.
3: Uh, it really is such a gift to have it captured, and especially to capture it in this time, um, you're reflecting on what we're all living through as we're parents. And I think you mentioned your kids are four or five. And so I think that's also making me think about the gift of having this moment captured because it's a similar age uh, for my kids, four and seven. Mm-hmm. I have three, actually, but my oldest is quite a bit older than that. Um, but, uh, but the baby time to the toddlerhood, your poems and above ground, they are kind of in this loose chronological arc. Um, you, you actually start from your wife's pregnancy. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm wondering if you could actually read the poem Passage, which is about your experience of reading a poem to your son who's in utero.
2: <laughs> I'd be happy to. Passage. Tonight I read you Dr. Seuss, as we do each evening, and my mouth contorts over amorphous letters while your mother laughs at my blundering tongue. But I'm not sure I'm to blame for fumbling over Circus McGurkis and Yertle the Turtle. It's just that sometimes it can feel sort of silly because I have these moments where I look down before I flip the page and realize that I am talking to your mother's skin. Well, not her skin per se, but the half-globe of your yet-born body swimming beneath it. I read a sentence and watch you kick, and I tell your mother that you are laughing, and she tells me you are trying to let me know that my turtle voice is subpar. I try a new version, less nasally, higher pitched, and you kick as if to tell me, just to finish the book already, you're trying to go to sleep.
3: Clint Smith reading from his new poetry collection, Above Ground. That is just something so many of us do during pregnancy, and and you capture both the the silliness of it, but also the tenderness of that uh, first bonding between parents, between parents themselves, not just between parent and child. What were you aiming to capture when you wrote that poem?
2: You know, as I write about in the book, in a few of the poems, my wife's, pregnancy, you know, or us becoming pregnant was not, uh, was far from a certainty. You know, we we were having, uh, we were on a sort of long fertility journey. Uh, we were told we had less than a 1% chance of conceiving at all. And so when we did conceive, it, it felt so miraculous. And it also felt so fragile. It felt so remarkable and felt so precarious. And, and so I think that I began writing these poems when my wife, when my wife became pregnant, because I did want to sort of even before I wanted to capture, you know, the moments of my children's lives when they, you know, were born and were babies and toddlers and and little kids. I wanted to capture the, the interiority of my own experience and and the experience between my wife and I, in this moment of of anxiety, of excitement, of uncertainty. And, and it, you know, it is this interesting thing where, you know, we have the, the science and we have the, all the research that shows that, you know, reading to your kids, even in utero, utero um, is, is a really good thing in terms of the habit that it develops both for the parent and also, you know, the science between of, of a, the child hearing um, the, the parent's voice. And, and you know, so there, so there are scientists who do this sort of work that know, can speak to it far more fluently than I can. But, but you do have these moments sometimes when you're like... I'm reading this Dr. Seuss book to this sort of, this thing, this, this idea, this, this little child in utero that I've never met, that I've never seen, that all we know of them are the sort of, um, kicks of, of against the, the inside of, uh, of my wife's belly. And, and so it is this sort of moment that feels at once tender and also kind of silly and also kind of, um it's it, kind of all of it, and part of what this book is is trying to to hold is is that all at onceness
3: yes, uh what was it about entering fatherhood that made you it seems like feel so viscerally the human condition of all at
2: onceness, you know i I think it's something that I think about over the course of much of my work. I'm I'm always thinking about as you mentioned at the top of the show the the simultaneity of the human experience and how our our lives our world the emotional texture of our of our being it isn't neatly compartmentalized into different parts of our lives or neatly demarcated on different days. You know it's not Wednesday is a happy day and Thursday is a despair day and Friday is a joy it's 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 that we carry all of it. Together, and I think it's a common thread through much of my work. You know, my first book, uh, a book of poems called "Counting Descent," I was thinking that was written, published in 2016, was written in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, I was thinking about what it meant to come of age as a young black person in this country, uh, what it meant to be a black person in this country while the while Black Death was so uh, conspicuous and so ever present on our phones, on our televisions, yeah, and how that was happening at the same time that I met the woman that I would fall in love with and who would become my wife, right? And so every day I woke up experiencing the simultaneity of joy and despair. And, and that I think there are different iterations of that for all of us. And in my book, How the Word is Passed, I'm thinking about how America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined, but has done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people. have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed and both of those things are the story of america and you have to hold both of those realities alongside one another and so i think in all of my books i'm interested in holding things together and specifically through in this book through the prism of parenthood you know parenthood is this thing that is filled with so much joy and laughter and levity and it's also filled with a lot of anxiety and a lot of difficulty and and is exhausting you know, parenthood is a thing that shows you the parts of yourself that you love and that you're really proud of and also shows you parts of yourself that you're not so proud of and parts mm-hmm. of yourself that you might be ashamed of, that hadn't been revealed to you until you became a parent. And so I'm, I'm interested in all of my uh, writing projects of, of rejecting um, simple narratives, of rejecting neat narratives, um, because our world is messy. Our history is messy. Our, our lives are messy. And, and I wanted to hold and lean into that complexity.
3: Well, I want to also invite our listeners to tell us if their experience of parenthood is also like what you describe, or if they they think about parenthood as experiencing deep joy and then maybe even deep terror simultaneously, or or anxiety at the same time, or if there's a moment in life when they remember feeling just this juxtaposition of emotions or the simultaneity of it all. You can share by emailing forum at kqed.org or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So even as you describe the poem you just read, a passage about reading to your wife's belly, is also just on the facing page juxtaposed with the to- poem about how she was feeling these incredible pains in her feet and legs and was basically being told by her doctor that it was all in her head, that it was not real. And, and it's the name of the poem, "All." It's All In Your Head. And had she not insisted on having them be taken seriously, you could have lost the child. So sort of the fragility that you speak of, um, of, of having this <laughs> child in utero against the the joy and immensity of what you knew you were about to experience. But as you say, there is so much joy, and we're about to come up on a break, but I'm wondering if there's enough time for you to read to us um, an ode to the bear hug.
2: Yes, I'd be happy to, absolutely. Ode to the Bear Hug. As soon as I open the door, I set my bag down and crouch into the appropriate position and growl this guttural invitation into my arms. You shriek, and you smile, and you move your small feet as fast as you possibly can in my direction, which sometimes means you fall, but when you look up, I am still there, and my arms are still open, like a universe in need of a planet to make it worth something. You pick yourself back up, and your body wobbles while you regain your balance, and you laugh, and I laugh, and your mother looks at us and says, my silly, silly boys, and when you finally reach my arms, I fall back and you fall on top of me and we roll on the floor and I say bear hug, bear hug, bear hug over and over again.
3: We're talking with Clint Smith about his new poetry collection, Above Ground. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Clint Smith, a poet and staff writer for The Atlantic, whose new collection of poetry is called Above Ground. His previous books include How the Word Is Past. For this conversation, he's describing poems that talk about family lineage, how we hold all the complexities of the world alongside one another. And of course, all of this is told through the prism of fatherhood. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What do you want to ask or tell Clint Smith? What do Clint Smith's poems or previous writings bring up for you? If you want, tell us about what you love most about being a parent or what terrifies you or if you have experienced that juxtaposition of contrasting emotions uh, in a moment that you Remember, as we're having this conversation, you can email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. And let me invite Chris, who is on the line. Chris in Oakland, you're on.
4: Hi. uh, What a great topic. Um, So I'm a pretty new father. I have a two-year-old and another one on the way. And something that I noticed is that... uh, Personally, it's so much easier to express sort of the the uh, the, the, the struggles of being a parent. Put, those, put that into words. It's so much easier to do that than it is to fully express the how it feels like the the joyous moments, the uh, the uh, the fun moments that you have. It's, you can give examples, uh, but but it's just like I don't know. It, just seems, it seems like poetry is the right format to to really express it. Um, <laughs> Something that I, I uh, uh, have have I guess I can I can name is that it's just being a new parent has just been made basically every day there's an opportunity just to be completely silly, not have to worry about like um, how like try like do not have to be clever or witty or or anything like that. I can just as long as, as my kid's laughing, that's all that matters. And uh, just the opportunity to be silly is just something that's really special right now.
3: Uh ah, Chris I love that so much and I bet Clint Smith you have some thoughts on that.
2: Absolutely. Well, congratulations on on the one on the way. Um and and godspeed with the with the 2-year-old. I know I know uh, all the as we've been talking about all of the the joys and and exhaustion that comes with that comes with that um having a toddler and a newborn having been there. But you know, it, it is it is one of the amazing things about this period of time is that it I think Chris is exactly right. Like, I'm a much sillier person than I think I was before I had kids. Um, It just, you know, when you have kids, like, you just, I think you take yourself, they force you to take yourself less seriously. Um, They also give me, a, a (laughs) like, a sort of um, disproportionate sense of how funny I am, I think. Like, because, you know, I'll say something not even realizing, and my kids will, like, fall on the ground laughing. And I'll be like, oh, man, I got to leave this this poetry thing behind and become a stand-up comic like I'm hilarious um but it's it's uh you know it's as long as you if you throw in a poop joke in there then you're you're golden so um it it is I was talking to somebody the other day about how I don't think I would have been able to write this book in this way without obviously without having kids cause I'm speaking so much about fatherhood, but like I hadn't tapped into humor in my writing before. Like in, you know, my previous mm-hmm. book was a, a book about the history of slavery. And, and so that was, that was not one that necessarily lent itself um, to levity in the same way. But, but part of what I loved about writing this book was, was that it allowed me to, to explore like a different part of my writing because my kids are so silly. And I think it makes me so silly. And I think it, it sort of oozed into, it diffused into uh, my writing um, in a way that felt that felt nice because I think sometimes we talk about writing. If you want your writing, writing taken seriously, you're made to feel as if it has to be somber and serious and um, and heavy and and it's important to write about those things, to be sure. But but I think that my kids have reminded me that it is also worth and also necessary and also important to to write about that which brings you joy and that which makes you laugh and the other parts of the human experience that are not singularly imbued with suffering.
3: Could we give our listeners an example of you writing with humor and with joy because the the poem that did that for me was Ode to the Electric Baby Swing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would be happy to read that. As long as I... Here we go. Ode to the Electric Baby Swing. When we first met, I wasn't really thinking I needed someone like you. But a friend told me that we'd be a good fit. Especially with everything happening in my life. All the changes. All the uncertainty. He said it would be nice to have someone you can count on. He said he used to have someone just like you. So, while I think he and I have slightly different tastes, I thought it couldn't hurt if we at least had the chance to meet and my wife said it might be nice to introduce something new into the fold, which left me a bit confused by how receptive she was to the possibility of you. I mean, she was never this open to throwing new things into our relationship before, but I digress. So anyway, I agreed, and when you first showed up at my door, you didn't look anything like the pictures I saw online. You came so broken, and in so many different pieces, which left me a bit worried because I wasn't looking for a project. I need to focus on my career, you know? But you were already here, and I was raised to have manners. So you came in, and we sat together on the floor. I put on some smooth jazz, and I helped you put yourself together the best way I knew how. And man, am I glad we got past that first awkward stage, because now you are the best thing that has ever happened to me. I literally cannot imagine my life without you. The moment I handed you my son, he fell asleep in your hold, and I danced in the living room because before he refused to sleep, but now he sleeps when you hold him. And my wife thinks I love you more than I love her. And I'm not saying she's right, but I'm not saying she's wrong. But I am saying you give me something she doesn't. And don't get me wrong, I love the mother of my son. It's just that you make me feel young again.
3: (laughs) So, so incredibly relatable. Again, you are capturing moments that I'm so glad to have captured because I never had the time to capture them, but knew that the moment was sort of magical.
2: (laughs) oh man that that baby swing, just any any intervention um, into the you know that allows you to get just like a few more minutes of sleep is is well worth it. So shout out to all the electric baby swings and the snooze and and all those things out there.
3: Um, but you know, even as we talk about all of this joy, can I tell you that one of the things that I really appreciated was the way that you also captured? Um, how terrifying it can be to have a child because I remember saying this to my spouse, but one thing that no one ever tells you, which no one ever should, but is that bringing into the world a child is bringing into the world something that you will be terrified of losing for the mm. rest of your life.
2: Every single day.
3: And there's this poem that you write. It's called We See Another School Shooting on the News that, you know, it's just such a deeply felt representation of that fear and so current, right? It's so much our times. And uh, if you wouldn't mind reading that one.
2: We see another school shooting on the news. And I don't know how I am ever supposed to let you out of my sight. I think about those children, how they woke up and had breakfast that morning as they did all the mornings before, half-eaten Pop-Tarts and eggs in a coat of ketchup, how they insisted on wearing their favorite shirt even though it was covered in stains, how they tied their shoes and double-knotted them just to be sure, how they smiled when they saw their friends on the bus and told them about the soccer game they'd had that weekend, the goal they scored. How none of them could ever have known what was coming. I fear everything I cannot control and know that I control nothing. I'm standing in a thunderstorm attempting to shield you from every jagged slice of yellow sky. I'm trying to inhale all the smoke from this burning world while asking you to hold your breath.
3: We're talking with Clint Smith about the simultaneity of, of the human experience and about fatherhood and how much it brings that up for, for us. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation um, by sharing whatever you felt a moment of the simultaneity of the human experience when you were struck by it, especially when you were feeling conflicting things at once, maybe experiencing joy and despair awe, in fear, and so on. Or if you just want to talk about what your experience of of parenthood has been like, Clint Smith reflects on it so beautifully in his new collection of poetry called Above Ground. This listener writes, as a new mother, Oh, let me just give listeners the details as well. You can email forum at kqed.org, call 866-733-6786, or post them at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And this listener writes, as a new mother, it always amazes me how my understanding of time has changed. Parent time seems to simultaneously fly and drag by. It's something you always hear about, but to experience it firsthand is truly eye opening. <laughs> and I think you got at this, Clint, at the beginning when you were talking about how, uh, you know, I, the years versus days mm. um, feeling of a parent. But uh, yeah, in terms of your understanding of time changing, has that happened to you?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about those. uh, I'm thinking of Chris, you know, who's about to have a two-year-old and a newborn. And and it is it's a little different, I think, when your kids get older. But I remember those days, you know, when you on the weekends when you didn't have childcare, and you love that time with your kids. It's so wonderful and beautiful. It is also it is like a different level of exhaustion and i remember how monday mornings had basically turned into friday night for me and i was like if you can like the end of making it to monday morning felt like being on a beach in hawaii (laughs) because it was like i dropped my kid off at daycare and now you're just like you sit with your coffee or your tea and like checking emails like never felt so relaxing um which is very different than you know my 20s where you know it's uh you're you're aiming for for Friday evening uh, rather than Monday morning but it, it is it's one of those things too that it happens so fast i mean just to reemphasize like it it happens so quickly like to think about and i have a poem in here about um Cic- the idea of the cicada so we i live in maryland um and then the dc yes. maryland yeah in the dc maryland area there's uh, cicadas that come every 17 years um and i'm fascinated by that life cycle um and i'd be happy to read that poem too maybe we can talk about it
3: yeah that would be great
2: This poem is entitled Above Ground. For weeks, we can't go outside without the cicada's song wrapping itself around the three of us like a quilt. The tree in our front yard has become their sanctuary, a place where they all seem to congregate and sing their first and final songs. We get closer and see the way their exoskeletons ornament the bark like golden ghosts, shadows abandoned by their bodies searching for new life. One of you is four years old, one of you is two. The next time the cicadas rise out of the earth, you will be 21 and 19. I think of how much might change between these cycles, how much of our planet will still be intact, what sort of societies will the cicadas return to when they make their next trip up to the earth. When they first arrive, you are both frightened of this new noise that hangs in the air of these small orange and black-winged bodies that fall from the sky like new rain. They don't bite, I say, but neither of you believes me. So I reach down to one of the branches and allow the orange-eyed creature to climb onto my finger. You both watch it roam around my hand as it becomes familiar with the flesh of my palm, your eyes widening at the revelation that this infrequent visitor has no interest in piercing my skin. And maybe that is enough. Because now you both try to pick up cicadas from the ground and collect them in buckets as if they are treasure. And maybe they are. Maybe treasure is in what almost dies as quickly as it rises from the earth. Maybe treasure is anything that reminds you what a miracle it is to be alive.
3: Hmm. Glenn, what is your relationship to cicadas, your poetry has referenced cicadas before. I remember reading an earlier work called "What the cicada said to the Brown boy, and in that poem, the cicada is giving survival tips to the boy and i I just' am curious about what they are as a symbol to you
2: mm. i'm i so much of this book and and much of my work, I think specifically my poetry is is always in conversation with the natural world. I mean, I just think they're so like the world around us is so remarkable and specific like the animals and the and the plants you know a thing that I do with my kids every weekend is um on Saturday mornings we watch nature documentaries um and mm-hmm. uh you know they want to wild, watch wild crafts I want to watch david <laughs> attenborough documentaries and so we uh we compromise um it depends on depends on what how we're feeling that Saturday morning but but I think it's because there's so many there's so many metaphors in in the natural world. Also, you know, so in the in the poem Encounting Descent," the poem you alluded to, uh, what the cicada said to the black boy. You know, I'm. This is in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. This is in the midst of us seeing black boys, black men gunned down by the police or vigilante, uh, and just thinking about the precariousness of black children's lives. And so, I was interested in the the life cycle of the cicada. As being a, a a marker in time, you know the cicada's life cycle is so unique in the natural world. It it only it lives underground for 17 years, and then it rises up out of the earth, finds a mate, and then dies. And you know, I was thinking about what it meant for black boys to to be able to make it to adulthood, to make it past the age of 17. Like, will they see more than one uh, cicada? you know group of cicadas rise from the earth and and in this poem you know i'm i'm thinking about how this moment is so singular where my kids are 4 and 2 and the next time the cicada's come the next time this species rises out of the earth they'll be 21 and 19 in a fundamentally different part of their lives so this moment in which i'm watching you know i remember the moment of sitting on my front porch and watching my kids sort of walk around the our front lawn and and had their yeah, their Halloween buckets from the year before, and they were like putting the cicada exoskeletons in the in the Halloween buckets to see who could um, uh, collect the most. And and I was like, this this moment won't ever happen again, right? It it will never happen. I mean, maybe my kids will, you know, maybe they will both become biologists, they're zoologists, and uh, you know, still collect cicadas when they're twenty one and nineteen. But it'll never be like this ever again. And I thought it was this sort of microcosm for. So many moments with our kids that if we don't pay attention to, we can forget how rare it is. Um, and, and what poetry does for me is poetry is the act of paying attention. And, and it forces me to, to look and to sit with and to reflect on and to excavate these things that I might otherwise uh, overlook or forget
3: and so above ground because that's also the title of this poem the title of your book is that what it does it mean more than sort of capturing this moment of time this moment that will never be again because i guess for me in relationship to the cicadas and the way you describe them in the poem i wondered if it if it was also something about what being above ground means or almost like alive like mm. survival And and being resilient like these cicadas are or incredibly vulnerable as these cicadas are. And I'm sorry, we're coming right up on a break. So we just have 30 seconds. But
2: I think the amazing thing and this is not a cop out. I think the amazing thing about art is that it can mean whatever you want it to mean. You know, like I have my own (laughs) intentions of what I think it meant when I made the title of this poem and of the book. But I think a thousand people can read the same poem and come away with a thousand different meanings. A thousand people can read this title and have a thousand different interpretations of it based on their own experiences and what they bring to the collection. And I think I think that that's amazing.
3: The collection is called Above Ground and we're talking with Clint Smith. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Forum. my am Mina Kim. This hour we're examining what it means to be a parent, what it means to be human in these times with Clint Smith, who's written a new poetry collection called Above Ground. Smith is a poet and staff writer for The Atlantic, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. His previous books include How the Word is Passed, and if there are questions you want to ask Clint Smith or something you'd like to tell him, feel free to call for him at 866-733-6786. If you want to talk about when you were struck by the simultaneity of the human experience, please feel free to do that, too. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email forum at kqed.org. Here are some some comments that we got on Instagram. The listener writes, I find roller skating at the park to be both joyful and challenging. Uh, Tamara writes, Life itself is joyful and challenging minute by minute, day by day, onward. Another listener writes, When my son packed his room to go off to college, that's when I felt joy and sorrow together so intensely. Joy that he was taking this next step and sorrow for how I would miss him, and some anxiety mixed in too, worrying about whether he'd be happy in his new life. Let me go to caller Sarah uh, in Oakland. Hi, Sarah. You're on.
5: Hi. Good morning. Um, thank you both so much for this conversation, and Mr. Smith for your work. It is, they are meditations and blessings and medicine, and I just love it so much. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. I was struck by that prompt of the, you know, being struck by the spontaneity of the human existence, sorry, simultaneity of the human existence and experience, and it brought me right to uh, six and a half years ago, I gave birth to my second and third kids, a set of twins, and my sister, who was three years younger than me, was in her last phase of life, uh, dying of a, a swift and mysterious cancer. And, uh, my sister died three months after my twins were born on my oldest child's birthday her third birthday. And it was just like all of the, all of the giant things happening at once, all of the celebration of life, all of this, you know, new, these new babies and this immense, immense loss, um, you know, emotional and physical loss of my sister and, you know, some years have passed, and what we've kind of learned as a family is like, oh, right, don't be surprised <laughs> when you are experiencing the simultaneity of life. It's, it's actually like that all the time, and sometimes more dramatically and sometimes more subtly, but it's what allows us to still find joy because there will always be the fire hose of grief, big and small, um, but there will also be these footholds of, of joy and. And life and living.
3: So, Sarah, so I, I appreciate that, that so much. Thank you for sharing that. And and I'm so sorry about your sister. Um, <laughs> it, your story is making me think of so many things. Things that we've touched on before about just how children also force us to be to be present and and to try to what we share about some of the pains that that we are going through, the, the sorrows that we are experiencing with our own children. Um, but I think it was something that you said at the end that is also making me wonder, Clint, as you have sort of really delved into the human condition of this simultaneity of so many different emotions all happening together at the same time, have you yourself arrived at a place that, that feels like a good way or or at least works best for you for now, I should say, in, in dealing with this reality, in dealing with this condition?
2: Yeah, well, I I just want to say thank you again for um, sharing that story, and and I'm so sorry about your sister. Um, but I, I I do think, as you so beautifully put, that the that that is so powerfully exemplifies that complexity and that simultaneity, and and that it's always like this. It's it's we are always carrying in our bodies a sense of joy and grief jubilation and despair um and it's you know just to say again like it is not something you can neatly compartmentalize into different parts of your psyche it's you can feel a wash in joy you know watching those two beautiful twin boys um or two two beautiful twin babies and uh you know also feel a in grief mourning the loss of someone who was so special have i figured out how to do it no no (laughs) i've not um and and this is one of the things that i most appreciate about the genre of poetry is that i think poetry allows you to wrestle with a set of questions even if you don't come up with any set of answers in fact i think i begin many poems with a set of questions and end the poem with a set of new questions and and it's you know it's different than some of my other forms of writing in which i'm trying to make an argument or make an assertion or um you know convince people to you know, believe something or think differently about something. I think so for me, poetry so much is it is both the creation of art, but also the mechanism through which I do my best thinking. And so it's, it's almost a, a sort of mindfulness practice. Um, and part of what has become clear to me over the course of writing this book is, is that I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to most effectively um, hold all of it together. I just know that that is what our time on earth demands of us um, and sometimes we do it elegantly and sometimes we do it inelegantly uh, and I think part of what I'm hopeful is that this book as uh, it is it has allowed me to extend grace to my parents it has allowed me to extend mm-hmm. grace to myself my wife it is I think parents need grace and and generosity and empathy it is it's hard like br- making kind thoughtful empathic little humans and like bringing them into the world and and raising them and and feeling connected to them for the rest of your life and so it's you know part of what also becomes clear when you become a parent is that we're just making it up you know as we go which is just a bunch of humans doing their best i remember when they gave me uh my first you know our son when we left the hospital um you know we my wife gave birth we um the next day we were discharged and they and i was like and they just handed us the baby and then waved goodbye. And I was like, wait a second, like, this is it? Like, there's no there's no training, there's no orientation, there's no man, you just, they just handed us the baby. I was like, this is so wildly irresponsible, they're just giving us this baby. <laughs> and then you're just like, oh, this is, you know, it's just a bunch of people who are just, you know, parenthood is just a bunch of just people trying to figure it out and just trying their best every day um, to be, you know, a better version of themselves for for their kids. And and sometimes it looks graceful and sometimes it doesn't.
3: (laughs) Well, this listener writes, as the parent of a teen with mental health issues, like so many these days, the worry and the hope almost break your heart. Another listener writes, my fatherhood started when our first son was born. His life lasted six years. Those two few years were hard as he was diagnosed with numerous issues after one year of age. Life doesn't prepare you on how to raise a child, definitely not on burying one. I loved him, and I'm so happy I was with him during that time, and that he got to spend two years with his younger brother. What he taught us in that small amount of time will last a lifetime. Fatherhood is amazing. Wow. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Let me go to caller Dwight in Oakland. Hi, Dwight. You're on.
4: Hi. Hi. i um, Dwight Webster. I am the father of uh, Kwame Webster, and I want to thank Clint Smith, the childhood close friend of my son, Kwame, who's a father, on giving me the generational blessing of hearing him as a father through his poetry and through his witness and work. And I've got all of it. I've got the other books. I will get this one. Thank you so much, uh, Clint. Appreciate
2: it. Uh, Reverend Webster. That is, that's amazing. That's uh, <laughs> like one of my childhood best friends. That's his, that's his father. Um, I remember being a, being a little kid um, playing in, in their living room. Um, and, and I'm actually, I'm in recording this in Seattle right now. I'm going to see Kwame, Kwame in a few hours after this, who lives up here. So that's, uh. That's a real treat. It's so good to hear his voice. <laughs> well, Thanks so- well gr- thank you. You're a treat. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much, Dwight, for calling in. I love moments like this <laughs> that are only possible on, on live radio. Um, let me go next to Lacey in Napa. Hi, Lacey. You are on. Hi. Thank you so much for this and your time. Um, Clint, I
5: have a question for you. I teach a class for people getting their elementary teaching credentials on integrating art into their classroom, and I was wondering if you have any tips for elementary school teachers on bringing more poetry in and teaching poetry and incorporating more poetry into their classroom.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for for doing that that wonderful and important work. Um, You know, the thing I tell teachers all the time um, is that so often when children are taught about poetry, they're taught about it as if it's like a geometric proof that they're supposed to solve or, or a code that they're supposed to unlock. And I think that that makes poetry really intimidating. Um, I think it can make poetry feel more complex than it needs to. Um, and, and I think poetry is about, it's about how it makes you feel, you know, it's about what, what a word or a line or an image bring up. And, you know, so I, I think for me, when you're introduced, especially, when you're just introducing, introducing poetry, um, to students is just, you know, when you're, when they're reading it, like emphasizing that no interpretation is wrong, right. Emphasizing that, um, so, you know, they are poets and that they poetry is not you don't have to be published to write a poem. You don't have to, uh, you know, have a, a book to be a poet. Um, that poetry is in all of us poetry is everywhere and and they have an opportunity um to be participants in that it doesn't have to be something that they observe and i think also doing your best to sort of expand the the boundaries of what we typically think of as poetry i mean i remember when i learned about poetry it just felt like it was something that wasn't for people like me um and, you know, now we have these resources where, you know, there are YouTube videos and social media and all this stuff where people can see poets, understand people, that there are poets who are alive, right? And who are black and who are Muslim and who are women and who are queer. I mean, just, to, you know, who are human, who, who reflect the diversity and plurality of the, of the human experience of our society. And so I think all of those different things, um, I think, make poetry feel like an invitation. Um, rather than intimidation.
3: We are talking with Clint Smith, poet and staff writer for The Atlantic, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You alluded to this earlier um, that you were willing to make your poems almost simpler, um, sort of inspired in part by the silliness and the the kinds of things that your children brought out in you. And it reminded me of in an interview when you talked about how you realized that that part of your larger project as a writer is a rejection of the idea that writing with intellectual rigor has to come at the expense of legibility. Mm. And, and I was wondering what you mean by that, how you think about making your art legible or what legible means to you.
2: Yeah, I I think that Sometimes accessibility um, in literature can feel like a pejorative term. I mean, it depends on the context in which it's used and who's using it. But for me, like I, you know, I the my north star as a writer, regardless of if I'm writing a book of narrative nonfiction or a book of poetry or an article for the Atlantic, I'm always thinking about a 15 or 16 year old version of me. I'm all, when I wrote *How the Word Is Passed*, I wanted to write the sort of history book that would have helped of, that I felt like I needed in my high school American history class. That would have helped me understand the the history of my my city, my state, my country more fully, more deeply, more more honestly. And when I write poems, you know, I'm I'm thinking about the younger version of me who was really intimidated by poetry, as we kind of discussing in the previous um, response to the to the caller. You know, I was. It felt an ex- it felt difficult to access. It felt um, obtuse. It felt um, distant. It didn't feel like it spoke to my lived experiences or the experience of anything anyone that I knew. And and I when I write my poems, for me, it, it, I want people to feel again as if they're an invitation. I want them to feel as if they're something. They're poems that they can read and understand and make sense of. And to be clear, part of it is an artistic disposition, right? Like, so for me, it is very, like, I write a lot of poems that are very sort of clear narratives. I write a lot of poems that um, are, for me, accessibility in that way and legibility matters a lot. But but that's just also a stylistic choice, you know, in the same way that there are painters who paint art, abstract paintings and... Um, there are painters who paint landscapes and and more more direct portraits. Um, neither of those are wrong. They're just different styles, and different styles suit different artists. And I think it's the same for poetry. My style is reflective of my sensibilities and my sort of artistic commitments and dispositions. And other poets may write in a different way um, that might be more abstract, that might be um, more uh, sort of formally um, structured, more, more, um, you know, in conversation with a different set of literary uh, histories and commitments. And that's also perfectly fine. You know, I think that the, I was taught about poetry as if it could only be one thing, Mm. but poetry can be so many different things and different, you know, I have friends who write in very different ways than me and I love their work. I love sort of the, the complexity of, of some of that. But I think for me, you know, what I, I just, it matters a lot to me that people understand the expansiveness and the different possibilities of poetry in the same way that exists in any type of art music visual art um and that there's a place there's something that anyone there's a type of poem, a type of poet um for everyone, and it's just a matter of of finding the the style and the um and the type of writing that that most suits you,
3: yes, well, in that vein, could you And today by reading to us Tradition, um, which is a poem that makes me think a lot about how we modify so much of what we're taught. Um, Parenthood is so much about that generationally, too. Um, Whenever you're ready, Clint.
2: Absolutely. Tradition. On Sundays, we make French toast the way my father made French toast with me. Each of you stand on stools that lift your bodies above the counter. And I roll your pajama sleeves up to your elbows, then ask you if you're ready to start. You both take turns shouting out everything we need to begin. An incantation of ingredients that have become the lyrics to a song only we know. So much of what I try to do as a father is put back together the puzzle pieces of what my father did for me. What is the way he held me when I first said I was afraid of the dark? How long did he let the silence between us sit when I'd done something that broke his trust? What was the shape of his eyes when he told me he'd never be disappointed if I tried my best? I don't always remember what he said, but I remember how it felt to have him there, to have his body brushing against mine when he reached for the bread, to have his hands wrap around my own as they guided me in cracking the eggs, to remember how he extended the measuring spoon full of sugar and cinnamon toward me, that together we could use our fingers to lick it clean. The end products aren't always exactly the same. I don't use all the same ingredients. Sometimes I make substitutions. Sometimes I burn the bread. Sometimes he did, too. But I tried to remind myself that all these years later, I don't remember what the bread tasted like, just that my father had put it on my plate.
3: Glenn Smith, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
2: It's been a real pleasure. Always so good to be on this program.
3: Always so good to have you. And thank you for Above Ground. That's the name of Smith's new poetry collection. You should definitely pick it up. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners, for your intense and thoughtful comments. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.